0: First, I'd like to uh, welcome everyone. This is an event, a talk presented by the uh, Department of Race, Ethnicity, and Migration Studies. Uh, Colorado College is pleased to welcome Flores Forbes, a former member of the Black Panther Party Central Committee, to discuss with us the internal political philosophy of the group. Before we proceed, there are many people and institutions to thank for this opportunity. First, Professor Claire Garcia, the chair of Race, Ethnicity, and Migration Studies, Dean Mike Edmonds, Associate Dean Ray Evett, Uh, Dr. Paul Buckley of the Butler Center, the Departments of History and Philosophy, and finally the National Endowment of the Humanities. These events are obviously not possible without the guidance and support of these organizations and people. So again, thank you for this support. Flores Forbes is a writer, urban planner, and economic development expert, and is currently an Associate Vice President in the Office of Government and Community Affairs at Columbia University in the City of New York. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in, in, in Interdisciplinary Studies of the Social Sciences from San Francisco State University and a Master's of Urban Planning from the Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service in New York University. He's also been a Patricia Roberts Harris Fellow at NYU and a Charles H. Revson Fellow at Columbia University. In 2000, he published an essay in the Norton Anthology on Police Brutality entitled Point Number 7, We Want an Immediate End to Police Brutality and the Murder of Black People. And in 2006, he published his memoir, Will You Die With Me, My Life, in the Black Panther Party, which chronicled his 10 years in the Black Panther Party, three years as a fugitive, and four years, eight months, and nine days as an inmate in Soledad and San Quentin prisons in California. His current writing project, Invisible Men, explores the lives of successfully formerly incarcerated black men who've been felony free for 15, 20, and 25 years. Few organizations have preoccupied the imagination of those concerned with emancipatory politics as the Black Panther Party. In 1969, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, wrote the following in an internal memo, quote, The Breakfast for Children program has been instituted by the Black Panther Party in several cities to provide a stable breakfast for ghetto children. The program has met (laughs) with some success and has resulted in considerable favorable, favorable publicity for the Black Panther Party. The resulting publicity tends to portray the black panther party in a favorable light and clouds the violent nature of the group and its ultimate aim of insurrection the breakfast for children program promotes at least tacit support for the black panther party among naive individuals and what is more distressing provides the black panther party with a ready audience composed of highly impressionable youths consequently The Breakfast for Children program represents the best and most influential activity going for the Black Panther Party, and as such is potentially the greatest threat to efforts by authorities to neutralize the Black Panthers and destroy what it stands for. Close quote. The preoccupation with the Panthers has never been limited to law enforcement bent on its destruction. In 1971, the Shy Lights topped the Billboard charts with the title song of their album that implored and demanded, for God's sake, give more power to the people, echoing the rallying cry of the Panthers. Recently, we are perhaps familiar with Beyonce's Super Bowl appearance that elicited the following response from former New York City Mayor and failed presidential candidate Rula Giuliani and that the spectacle invoked by the aesthetic of the Panthers and support for the Black Lives Matter movement, quote, this is football, not Hollywood, and I thought it was really outrageous that she, if she used it as a platform to attack police officers who are the people who protect her and protect us and keep <laughs> us alive. And what we should be doing in the African American community and all communities is build up respect for police officers and focus on the fact that when something goes wrong, okay, well, we'll work on that. But the vast majority of police officers risk their lives to keep (laughs) us safe." Close quote. We are fortunate today to have with us Flores Forbes, whose memoir, Will You Die With Me, opens with the following important historical lineage for our consideration from Elaine Brown, the former chairwoman of the Black Panther Party, whose recollection of our guest is a more powerful and poignant endorsement than I might ever provide. She writes, quote, "'And I see now Jonathan Jackson, the magnificent man-child slain in his 17th year, as I recall the booming figure of Fred Hampton, wiser at 21 than the old men who praised him after the FBI murdered him in his bed. I remember the sister warriors, Erica Huggins, my comrade and captain, and the martyrs who spent lifetimes behind bars, including the tender Romaine Chip Fitzgerald, languishing still in a California prison cell since 1969. And among the heroes who did not die, who are more numerous than one might think in this abyss of apathy, I remember Flores Forbes, friend, comrade, revolutionary guerrilla, freedom fighter. Join me now in welcoming to Colorado College, Flores Forbes.
1: Great. Thank you, Mike. So I guess I don't have to thank anybody since he already already actually did that. Um, Anyway, this is. um, you know this has been a great adventure for me you know to come down here and uh to see this campus and to talk to some of the students and meet some of the faculty and uh, <coughs> you know and to see how um this academy has embraced you know different types of literature that usually uh you know is not taught in a you know a lot of the academic settings you know so so what I want to talk about um and it won't be long, you know, it's about maybe 15 minutes, something like that. Uh, I want to talk about fiction and nonfiction books and their politics and how they shape what we believe and how we act. And this is in particular with regards to what we read and what guided us in the Black Panther Party. And, and what then and the result is what I call the library spook. And I'll get to that a little later on. Um, I was in the Black Panther Party for about ten years, and one of the most difficult jobs I ever had was as the armorer. And that was the person that had to take care of all the weapons and um, deal with the logistics and, and make sure that, um, you know, that you know, we were able to resupply and that sort of thing. And but when I got the job, you know, I didn't have, I don't have any military background I have a, had a little bit of training, and um, so I went to my mentor who was a guy named uh, Ray Masai Hewitt who was the Minister of Education, and so I asked him, I said, um, you know, I don't know anything about a lot of these weapons, and you know, I need some help, you know, who, who do you think can come in and help me, and he told me this, and, and, and it's been the most valuable lesson I've ever had, he said, everything you want to know, about any of those weapons is in a book somewhere. So, um, you know, uh, recently, um, Robin Kelly, who uh, teaches at uh, UCLA, he was commenting on the request by students and others and faculty about getting more control of the uh, curriculum and about going, making a request to the particular institution that he was at. And one of the things he said, he said, but granting the university so much authority over our reading choices and emphasizing respect for difference over a critique of power comes at a cost. Students not only come to see the curriculum as an oppressor that delimits their interrogation of the world, but they also come to see racism largely in personal terms. So, you know, so that was in 2016. So in 1968, uh, the Black Panther Party produced a reading list of what we thought the black community should be reading and what party members should be reading. And some of the books on that list were the Autobiography of Malcolm X, Black Reconstruction the Souls of Black Folks by W.E.B. Du Bois, and books by Kwame Nkrumah, C. Franklin Frazier, Richard Wright, John Hope Franklin, Marcus Garvey, Leroy Jones, who um, Amiri Baraka, Carter G. Woodson, and in particular, a little red book by um, Mao Zedong, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later too. So within the organization, these texts were taught in weekly political education classes. And basically, we had classes for new recruits and the intermediate level Panthers, And then there were advanced classes, and this evolved into what we call the Ideological Institute. And the texts were taught via our view of the community and the organizational perspective that we wanted to project, and this was divided into the mass line and the party line. So the mass line, where most of the information was was projected, was primarily in the Black Panther Black Community News Service, and this focused on mostly discussing the 10-point platform and program, and it was talked about our gaining freedom, uh, control of our own self-determination, in the exploitation of our community by the capitalists, freeing unjustly convicted black men from prisons, and ending police brutality and the murder of black people. And then the last point focused on raising the issue of the oppression of black people in America by demanding a United Nations plebiscite to investigate those issues. And the other distinction, which was the party line, focused mostly on the internal structure of the organization, the implementation of the 10-Point Platforming Program, and as Michael had mentioned, one of those programs was the free breakfast program for school children. And, but the very first program was the implementation of point number seven, and those were the armed patrols, where we patrolled the police in Oakland, and um, I mean, basically kind of set the tone for what we thought was an appropriate response to the murder and the brutality of black people. So an example of how we appropriated certain books and their ideas and how we meshed them with, with as, as black people is very interesting to me today, especially given the new movements like Black Lives Matter, Color of Change, and others. So, for instance, most of us, I don't know, you know, maybe the people in here who teach black literature may be familiar with the, uh, the black folklore, secular ballads, and such. And uh, we called them back in the day common toasts, or narrative poems, and they were expressed in an early form of rapping to music, or drums, or the bongos. And these were similar to to rapping spoken word songs that groups like The Last Poets performed. And one of their songs was called Niggas Are Afraid of Revolution. And then you had Gil Scott Heron. And his song, one of his songs was called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. These recorded toasts were comparable to more granular and secular ballads that most young black people heard. And recited when growing up, when they were in the '60s and '70s, like the Signifying Monkey, Wild Negro Bill, Shine the Titanic, Frankie and Johnny, and High John the Conqueror. The Signifying Monkey is the most famous, and begins with a this badass monkey talking shit to this lion, and just because he wanted to start some shit that day, and it went on until the lion got the monkey out of the tree and beat his ass. And this particular common toast with short lines was introduced to the public by jazz man Oscar Brown, Jr. And it was introduced to the academy by Henry Louis Gates of Harvard. And so these short, these short line toasts that had various meaning to us as a people and equally signified some type of action by wolfing against the oppressor or the man, you know, they were very, they were very similar to the short lines and phrases that Mao Tung had in his little red book. But some of them were political power grows out of the barrel of a gun, no investigation, no right to speak, we must have faith in the masses and faith in the party. And then he had one, it was he who is not afraid of death by a thousand cuts of the knife dares to unhorse the emperor. For some, pe- for some reason, people in the party related very closely to what Miles said, because I believe it was very easy to find a street or urban posture and a relationship between the common toast and the boasting of actions toward the man, and Miles' short quotations that were also inciting one to rebel. So this early fusion of two very diverse genres was used, and probably by accident, aided in organizing the brothers and sisters on the block and became the basis for our emerging black radical fight. So from 1968 to 1970, things got got pretty heated up. The combat action of the struggle was was intensified and sadly, we started taking casualties. Dozens of Panthers were getting killed, wounded, jailed. Several had to go into exile. And when our officers were raided, they usually resulted in shootouts, or what we call Mexican stand-offs. So nevertheless, things had been already deep for us, and Huey P. Newton had been convicted of killing a policeman in 1968. But then his conviction was overturned, and he got out of prison in 1970. And when I met him, things got very interesting as I discovered what he called "the sterner stuff of politics." which is the opposite of the soft stuff, like the survival programs, which included the uh, breakfast program. Or more concisely, it was his euphemism for the underground. The introduction of this new thing was accompanied by his required reading list. Huey was interested in enhancing what can be called the esprit de corps of the Black Panther Party. And as you know, every organizational entity has such a, a group enhancement You know, in the U.S. military you have special ops and, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, that's something very familiar to everybody else. So, you know, we were always talking about urban guerrilla this and urban guerrilla that, but what did it really mean in urban America? We knew we could not outgun the U.S. So what would the real emphasis be for such activity if it existed? So the focus of this thinking had more to do with what you thought you were doing in the area of work and what one read really shaped that function. Now we were reading the major revolutionary theorists, but few of them understood our situation in America. I'm sure Mao or Che Guevara cannot imagine what it was like to live in this country where you had these geographically diverse communities that were being occupied by a form of police repression but the people who lived in those communities were still called citizens. So moving forward, you know, the various authors stood out for Huey Newton, like Franz Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth; Sun Tzu, The Art of War; Carlos Marigalía, The Mini Manual of the Urban Guerrilla; Mayimoda Masashi, The Book of Five Rings; and even Mario Puzo's The Godfather. So Newton's organizational innovation was to recruit and train a small group of Panthers who had been in the organization for at least five years. And I think this had a lot to do with creating a cohesive team chemistry. And they would specifically provide protection to our leaders, as many of them were running for political office. And most of them, including myself, we would be involved in the functions that got involved in the underworld activity in the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Area and in underground activity in the same place. So this group that he created would be called the Buddha Samurai. And the Buddha represented an administrative factor and the Samurai as the warrior. So our goal with regards to the sternest stuff of politics was to take over the underworld elements of the Bay Area. Concurrently, because of the heightened repression from from the state our organizational strategy shifted. So we decided to close down all of the chapters and branches and combine all Panther activities in the Bay Area. This was similar to the long march in China as conducted by Mao and his forces after they were defeated by the Japanese and the Chinese nationalists. And we also discovered that out of a book also. So our political strategy was to take over the city of Oakland by running a slate of candidates to take control of the city's public policy apparatus and thereby take control of the Port of Oakland and its millions of dollars in revenues. And at the time, in the 70s, the Port of Oakland was the second largest containerized port in the United States. And it was at this point that what I read and how I comprehended what I was reading reached a peak for my understanding. Coupled with my embracing Huey's concept of the sternest stuff of politics, the impact was becoming more ingrained as each word and sentence proved more indelible to me. And yes, it did affect you profoundly because you thought in many ways this was really important stuff and that you were a special person who was involved in this stuff. So um, so my, my reading and studying of Fanon... Uh, affected how in particular I saw what we were doing in the struggle and made my understanding more vibrant regardless of the consequences. So as a, a, you know, an example of that, so in 1977 you know, I invoked a lesson gleaned from Fanon to justify my actions which consequently got my best friend killed and me wounded, made me a fugitive for three years and I eventually wound up serving five years in prison. I believe that my actions could be defined by what we call the right to initiative. And I expanded on this in my memoir. This term, the right to initiative, was derived from our reading and interpretation of the Wretched of Earth by Franz Fanon. He states that it is the oppressed people's right to believe that they should kill their oppressor in order to obtain their freedom. And we just modified it somewhat to say we You know, that would be anybody who's in our way. On the other hand, in a broader organizational sense, Mario Puzo's book was another adaptation of literature we used to construct our chain of command. His book, The Godfather, was introduced to Huey P. Newton through his friendship with Francis Ford Coppola and Marlon Brando. For us as an organization, it provided an example of a disciplined organization that operated in an environment where you are breaking the law. The book provided us with a more secular example, creating buffers within the organization which could augment any deniability. And as an aside, history shows that most so-called democratic governments also implement a command and control, control structure so that they too can invoke plausible deniability. The only difference with them is that they enforce the rule of law. And therefore, do not need elaborate charades to conceal their actions. The Godfather novel helped us see how we should structure many aspects of the Buddha summarized operations. As we again were eventually breaking the law via our operations, but were deliberately not trying to get caught. So, you know, I want to um, close with um, a couple of comments about. Uh, Nonfiction books and fiction books. And, um, you know, I think that it's it's important to uh, note that in a lot of fiction that's been written in the United States, um, the most horrendous activity that has come from it is when black people were vilified, or the villains in these books. And there was a book that was published by, called The Klansman, and it's as Klansman with a C, and it's by a person named T.F. Dixon, Jr., which was adapted for the screen by D.W. Griffith as the birth of a nation. The film is credited with the coming of the second era of the Ku Klux Klan and a vicious onslaught of murders and lynchings of black people as a result. The second novel is Gone with the Wind which became the movie of the same name and also attributed to further oppression and enhancing stereotyping of black people in America. But nonfiction, on the other hand, this is supposed to be real stuff. Books that require research, so-called truth-telling, and many myths are brought to life and purported to be true in this genre. There are books banned in certain places like Texas, Russia, and in other states, but if you read for deep meaning and want to learn something and choose books that are written by people who have been vilified, you know, you should pay attention so that you don't become a victim of what I call the library spook. That's S-P-O-O-K. For example, our book list was screened and tracked via the FBI's counterintelligence program. Now books are powerful, so pay attention because what you what you what you can read can tell you volumes about the institutions and the countries that are supposed to be helping you survive within all of your academic boundaries. Thank you So I
0: figure what we'll do is i'll uh some questions out. We'll sit here and I'll throw some questions out to, to start a conversation with floors and then we'll take questions from the floor after that. So, this will take about 10 minutes or so to kind of uh, push on some things that I think will be useful from that'll kind of jive with what our class is doing as well. So, we'll do that, then we'll take questions from the floor. And I think you guys will be able to hear us from over there because this is a pretty good room. So, for the first thing, like understanding, I want to talk about how uh, your writing fits into this structure, right? And one thing that to me because I noticed there's a soundtrack in your memoir. right And as things happen, like the, the first one is early in the text when you talk about uh, the book, is, the song, the
1: Aaron he was a he was a musician he and his music that he performed was primarily you know with protest music. Uh, you had the last poets. Uh, Motown had just starting producing um, protest songs you know and um, you know I think the whole thing was growing I mean it's growing actually it came out before the Black Panther Party was founded yeah you know but it was a song that you know we, we listened to a lot of music and it was something i think that motivated us and and i think that that probably is the primary you know factor you know behind me uh, mentioning those song yeah it's interesting
0: one. the song particularly because what i noticed about it is in the texas when the first time the police ever beat you up right and you said that you were jogging you could hear it's growing playing and then this what was appearance. that so it was I, like was, a I was i was a memory
1: i played football I was working out one night at the um, um, at the uh, field, the track field in San Diego, California, and there had been a party not far away, and they were playing that song. And um, and and this is you know, when I think about it, you know, I was running around the track, and so there was a fight in the uh, party, and people started to run. And so the police came and they started chasing people. So, you know, some a spotlight got, got on me. I'm running around the field and I'm, you know, covered up with uh, gym clothes and stuff like that. And the police come down there and they accused <coughs> me of being somebody who was, I clearly was not, you know, dressed for a party. And they beat me up. It was about 20 of them. And the only reason why I didn't get beat Worse was because they were the only black policeman in San Diego happened to be there at the time. And he was a friend. I went to, was going to school with his son, yeah. and he was there. Uh, he was able to stop it. How old were you? I was 14.
0: So let's talk about, I mean, that's because from, from reading the memoir, right, <coughs> this notion of police brutality becomes the critical catalyst for your right. involvement with the right. Right. So tell right. us about.
1: Um, I mean, you know, I... You know, the, the reason why, you know, I joined the Black Panther Party because I didn't believe I was going to survive. Uh, my, me and my brother, joined. My brother was a, uh, <coughs> I guess he might have been a freshman or a sophomore at uh, UCLA. And he was bringing home, you know, all this uh, literature from school. He was bringing home Black Panther newspapers. And there was a lot of press, uh, the press. The, uh, The Panthers had been doing the armed patrols in the Bay Area. And then um, there was a state assemblyman who filed, who um, uh, put in a bill called the Mulford Act to end the uh, open carry law. Because there was a statute in the uh, Fishing and Game Commission of uh, California that said you could carry a loaded rifle or shotgun. as long as you didn't have a felony, and, and the irony in that, this this Huey Newton <coughs> discovered this when he was in law school. His law school professor, and I, maybe the older people might recognize this, the law school his law school professor was Edwin Meese, <laughs> you know, who was who became the Attorney General of the United States for under uh, President Reagan. So I mean, I, I think that it had more to do with survival. Um, most of the people who were joining, men or women, um, said the same thing, that it was about surviving. Um, you know, living in California, things were very different than they were in the South. You know, we weren't fighting against uh, Jim Crow. You know, the uh, police brutality was probably the worst thing that was going on in, in California, and probably in, in a lot of northern cities also. Mm-hmm. So, I mean,
0: as a continuum, so I think this is where the question becomes, and why I, I wonder how the Black Panthers still exist in the imaginary in the way that they do, right? Because police brutality has gone nowhere, but and the, the problem has gone nowhere, but the Panthers have in many ways disappeared. So the right, question that right. I'm wondering how you read that.
1: Well, one of the things that um, Huey Newton used to talk about a lot was political theater, uh, which is why you know, they wanted the cameras to show up when something was going on and we were there. Especially when they had guns. And he said that this was a way for us to organize the community and to let people know. Because, the, you know, someone will tell you, well, it's illegal to carry a gun. And he's like, no, the law says you can carry a loaded rifle or shotgun. You know. And so a lot of it had to do with the... I guess capturing the imagination of of the press at the time, because obviously the press hadn't seen anything like that, you know, short of you know Robert Williams and North Carolina and, uh, and the Deacons for Self Defense, and um, but this was in a uh, a different setting. Um, you know, the original founders were were college students, and they wanted to attract. Um, young people like me. And um, they were successful in doing that. So I think that, the, you know, the, the, you know, and the whole thing of the, the black leather jacket and the beret, sure. You know, which wasn't worn that long, but, you know, his thing is that, you know, we have to, you know, look like we're, or, we're organized and that we're orderly um, and that we're in control. So I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, I, I, I'm sure. You know, I mean, he—he he was killed in like 1989. I'm sure there was no way he would believe that um, it would have the kind of resonance that it has today. I mean, I—I'm I'm shocked every time I, you know, the whole the Beyonce yeah. performance. I—I I thought she was doing Rhythm Nation. You know, the Janet Jackson uh, <laughs> performance and. Um, and when I got to work, my, you know, my assistant had to tell me. She said, no, she was doing an homage to Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party. I said, really? I said, you know, so. <laughs> so, what, so what do you think is the, uh, I mean, there's certain,
0: certain aspects of it seem obvious to me, and your talk really made me think about, it occurred to me that the problem with kind of notions of white supremacy and order would have been the problem of violence from the party. But then you, you revealed this kind of much deeper uh, Involvement, right? This kind of notion of an underground, this kind of ability to kind of move people internally and externally to the country, the question of taking over port. So it seems to me that, and then even with with Hoover's notion that he's more concerned about this hearts and minds routine than he is about us. So tell me how you think that that the party exists in the imaginary of kind of white supremacy.
1: I I mean, I I think it had more, I think it had less to do with the guns and more to do with what we were reading and Mm -hmm. what we thought was a way for black people to think um, you know, I assume everybody may have gotten the, the 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 nonfiction reference to a a myth that is supposed to be fact you know I mean that's a book that you know you find in every black home, and um that was something that's what we were fighting against
0: the bible yeah yeah
1: I mean Huey Newton's father was a minister right. You know, my father was a deacon. I mean, you know, um, and we had this struggle with uh, the belief in a faith that uh, had not delivered us, you know. And so I think that, you know, in saying, well, look, read, you know, let's let's check this out, you know. Uh, <coughs> you know, the whole, uh, um, the comparison between uh, Mao Tom's short statements and the uh, the folklore that we knew about growing up in the black community I mean I that's you know I kind of thought about that recently and I was trying to figure out why why did we make such an easy connection on that why do we make such an easy connection on France for now you know um, and there were other you know people I mean the other some of the other books that I was talking about um, the uh, the book of five rings by Maya mother Musashi is a, is a book about Kendo Swordsman, but what it deals with is how you train your mind. Um, the Mini Manual of the Urban Guerrilla by Carlos Mayagalia focused on h- how you operate in an urban setting and um, you know, continue with your activities and your programs uh, without being discovered. And, and he was in, a, I think he was in, he was like a, a Tupamaro and he was in South America somewhere. How you, know, how you ne- don't get discovered by the death squads? And there were death squads in this country. You know I mean? It's, it's, so, so I'm saying, so there's, there's another yeah. myth that we were trying to dispel was that we're living in a country where the policemen are there to protect us. Right. And our notion was that they were an occupying army. You know, that was a, that's a notion of white supremacy, right. you know, in terms of being in, in an urban setting.
0: One last thing, and then we'll open up to the floor. This question of religion is fascinating me because oftentimes the conflation, which in modern imagination is between the nation of Islam, Islam <coughs> generally, right. Right, and, right, and the Black Panther Party. Talk about why religion was consciously kind of extracted.
1: Well, you know, the, the other um, non-secular group that had a discipline organization that we studied was the Nation of Islam. You know, we wanted to, how, how did they do what they did? And the problem with that was because of the, uh, the, the faith aspect of it, you know. Um, and that made it difficult for us to really analyze, because I think in order to analyze it, you had to believe, you know, properly. Right. So it was easier to do the, the, the Godfather. I mean, it's, it's fiction. I mean, I don't know if Mario Puzo actually knew what the mafia, how it operated. You know, I think he he made it up, but he, you know, told this story about how they created these buffers to protect themselves. Right. You know, so I I think that, um, you know, the issue of, of, you know, religion, of of, uh, faith. I mean, I think there are many things that you have, people have faith in, you know. But I think that there are some things you have faith in that can be detrimental to you. I mean, it's not that we didn't, you know, I mean we you know we thought Martin Luther King was fabulous. Um, (coughs) and 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 what they were doing in terms of dealing with Jim Crow was an entirely different issue.
0: Okay.
1: You know. And you know, and also an irony in that is a lot most of the policemen that were in California were recruited from the South. Questions
0: from the, you guys, anyone? Feel free.
2: (laughs) What are some of the books that you're reading now,
1: you read? Um, I'm actually reading a book that's a, it was a Yale professor that has unearthed a memoir of a free black man that was in prison in like in the eighteen fifties. And um, gosh. I mean I read a lot of stuff for work. <laughs> you know. Um, you know, you try to stay abreast of your any profession, any huh? Recent I was just curious if there's anything recent
2: that has come out that you think has you know shines any light on the stuff that you've been
1: talking about. I mean well you know during the, I just finished my my next book and so during that whole writing period I don't read anything that's not related to that you know so I mean you know there were um, I mean I had to read The Wretched of the Earth again Yeah, you know, I really enjoyed that you know um, Sun Tzu um, Miles Little Red Book I mean you know those are some of the things that I was reading uh, you know i read every now and then you know mm. but a lot of it you know um, you know my reading list right now really today is really boring <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know.
1: Thanks. Mm. Um, <laughs> could you talk about uh your thoughts on um the necessity or the role of a leader in the black panther party movement and then also today even leadership okay well um I mean, I I think, I I think developing a leadership structure is probably what's important. Because, um, and we we didn't talk about this, but we didn't have what, you know, normally in in corporate America, there's the talk of a succession plan. Well, we didn't have a succession plan. But for some reason, whenever the, you know, I mean, Huey was in prison for three years, and someone stepped up. You know, uh, Bobby Seale was in and for a little while, and people stepped up. You know, Eldridge Cleaver left and went to Algeria, and people stepped up. And, um, <coughs> and I think that was the whole issue of creating kind of a, a leadership system, you know. And um, I mean, I think that's what he, uh, Huey, Huey, was trying to do with the whole concept of the Buddha Samurai, you know, was to give people a responsibility uh, to really make you think you were important. You know, and I think, you know, but that, you know, um, was disseminated through the entire organization. So I think that, you know, I, I think the, you know, the, the importance really has to do with, you know, the whole leadership structure. You know, are the people who are involved, uh, do they really feel that they have skin in the game? You know? Good question. Well, I mean, I I read it completely different this time uh, because um, uh, some of the things that we're doing at Columbia with regards to criminal justice reform, you know, we have a... We created a Center for Justice, and we have a program that's called Beyond the Bars Fellows. And a lot of the leadership in the academy is coming from the Department of Psychology. Um, And, you know, Fanon was a... uh, psychologist and um, and and we had a um, uh, our provost before he left uh, was a, guy, a professor named Claude Steele, and I think he's at UC Berkeley now. But he had come to Stanford, and he's the person that came up with this concept of the stereotype threat. So I had read his book um, Whistling Vivaldi, and was participating in the reading group at the uh, university. Where we talked about you know the different psychological aspects, and a lot of the people from our uh, Yellow Ribbon program, who are you know returning veterans, who are going to school there, um, you know are participating. So I, I read it this time, um, focusing probably mostly on the trauma that he saw, that was on both sides of the Algerian uh, Revolution, whereas the. Um, First time, I was, I was looking for something. You know, I was looking for help, you know, the first time. This time I was reading it to, more, you probably need to get a little more meaning about what he was doing, and how it relates to, um, you know, psychological disorders that, um, that, that not just black men, but many people say who were formerly incarcerated what they suffer from when they come out. You know, they also have post-traumatic stress syndrome, but then they have something else, you know, that, you know, how does it how does the rejection, you know, of your job application, how does that affect you? So, you know, so it kind of, you know, it was it became very generalized um at this moment. And, you know, and I'm not obviously not doing the same thing I was doing there.
0: You mentioned uh, *The Godfather* is one of the seminal texts that uh, fiction works that influenced uh, a lot of the uh, Black Panther Party ideology and, and methodology. I was curious if there are any other fiction works that uh, that Huey Newton disseminated and said, "Hey, you need to read this." *Invisible Man*, uh, being one, or
1: yeah, *Invisible Man* was one. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess. I mean, I guess the uh, fiction. I mean, Invisible Man was one. Um, and I can't really think of any, you know, um, you know, fictional um, um, books that, um, you know, that we actually read and we thought we were gonna be able to learn something from that, you know, outside of that, at that time. I wonder if you could say something about the Black Panther Party and the, the emergence of black studies programs particularly in, in Oakland okay I think the first program was in San Francisco State. you know um, i mean i I think that you know um, you know some of the stuff that that uh, uh, Robin Kelly uh, talks about is um, you know is important because I'm sure there have been instances where someone in a black studies department African American studies department has had a problem teaching a particular text you know I, I don't know right offhand, but I, I can imagine that someone has a problem with um, uh, maybe even uh, revolutionary suicide you know Huey Newton's uh, book or even um, uh, the stuff that George Jackson has written you know, Soledad Brothers. You know, um, they might have a problem with my book. You know, but I think that that's probably the biggest issue with regards to you know, that in the black studies department. I think that when you, you study the text, like that's why I'm you know, so impressed with you know, what you're doing here, you know, exploring all of these, um, you know, uh, the texts that are taboo in many ways. You know, even though they're you know uh, it's great research and they, you know, uh, do everything that a, a great book should do. I mean, you know, at at, um, at Columbia, you know, we, we have a you know African American Studies program, but um, the core curriculum for the college, you know, is called the core curriculum. So we just added um, the Wretched of the Earth is on the core curriculum now. The uh, souls of black folk is on the core curriculum, um, and Toni Morrison's The Bluest SI Eye is in the core curriculum. Because there have been issues, you know, about, you know, um, the validity of, you know, books that are thousands of years old, you know, and you know, are they really uh, teaching the uh, the kind of lessons that we want people to walk out of university with? Hope I answer your question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always thought that there was some connection between the development of Black Studies classes. Cor- I mean Black Studies program. Right. And the I don't. I, I, I'm not. I I'm not sure there's a, a correlation. Um, I mean, we had one. There were people who were, they were educators that they they were teaching at San Francisco mm-hmm. State. You know when it started. Um, I mean, I can't. Now maybe I, I don't know this. You know, but I don't remember there being a uh, a, uh, a correlation. I mean, I know that you know when Cornell Cornell University started their uh, Africana Studies program, the, um, the students didn't come to the school with guns. You know that sort of thing. Um, you know, and I think that people they they sat in and you know barricaded themselves in different offices and stuff like that but i you know I, I think it was it was it may have been a um you know a uh, um, something that was related to the time you know but i you know i really don't know if it was you know directly related to what we were doing
2: i'm wondering um your perspective on when police police brutality becomes police terrorism and when we can recognize it as a
1: well, I, I mean, the, the you know, I guess police brutality is just an act, and it doesn't matter what the policeman looks like. I think that's something that's part of the state. I think that the state um, uses violence as a policy instrument. You know, they use it all over the world. They have to use it here. I mean, a policeman's not carrying a gun because he's not going to use it, you know. Um, and I think the whole issue of terror is, I mean, I, you know, I, I think one of the things that needs to happen in terms of, of helping with policing is you have to remove the white supremacist aspect out of policing. You know, um, where the police behave differently in the black community and when they're in the, and, and as opposed to when they're in the white community, that they are, you know, I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to be in one of those, you know, the uh, police call, you know, the morning session, you know, and they say, let's go out there and get some bad guys. You know, there's there's something implanted in, in people's heads, regardless of your color, of who the bad guy looks like. I mean, you know, and they behave very much like uh, paramilitary operations. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't think that their training has anything to do with... Um, you know, desensitizing a situation or de-escalating a situation. And I think it goes. I mean, I mean, you know, we did stuff very similar to that. We had different ways we conducted ourselves. We had uh, a retail establishment. We had a, a bar in um, in Oakland called the Lamp Post, and some of the function, Some of us were bouncers, and when someone comes in and they're rowdy, there is a, a process. You know, you say, "Would you <clears throat> please calm down?" If they don't, then you say, "Okay, well, you have to leave." If they don't leave, you, you have to do. What are you going to do? You know. So it's it's a um, you know it's, it's it's kind of a really touchy issue. You know, with regards to um, uh, you know, say, police violence and, and terror. I mean, for me, it was, it was it was terror because I felt that. I mean, I kind of took it personal at the time you know, um, but today it's, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's almost the same thing. Mm
2: -hmm. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you could speak upon um, about women's influence in your personal experience in the Black Black Panthers party and the literature that kind of surrounds that topic. I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, there were women, You know, from the beginning of the organization, there were women who led the organization. Uh, Many of them have written. You know, Elaine Brown uh, wrote a book. Uh, Erica Huggins has uh, published. Um, You know, there's, you know, I mean, their influence was, you know, I mean, most of them were, many of them were probably the better educated people that were there. So they participated obviously, in the editing of the newspaper um, the layout of the newspaper and that sort of thing. So, I mean, they had a, you know, they, they always had a major role there.
2: Um so Sun Tzu writes a lot about knowing yourself and knowing your enemy in order to be successful. What's important for activists today to know about themselves before engaging, and how do we know, or how do we work best to discern what the enemy
1: well, I, I think they need to know who 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 the opposition is, so, or what what who it is they're dealing with. You know, I think that could say a lot about who you are. You know, um, that's why you know Mao used to say, "No investigation, no right to speak." You know, you really need to know what it is you're doing. You know, I mean, especially for today's um, the things that people are doing today, because I we have a. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, you know, the press has is, is, is be, been desensitized to a certain degree. I mean, you know, I don't have the actual numbers, but there was a poll that was taken that had a majority of white people believing that violence was a good thing to use against black people. Now, I, I would see that as, a, okay, then, you know, you, there's an issue with me coming around, and not being terrorized, you know. I mean, I think there's a whole thing of, of 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 being safe and uh, uh, and fear. And I think that you know, as a as an activist, you know, you need to understand those those types of uh, the, the dynamics. You know, with regards to, you know, you just can't you know run up and shout at somebody when they're on the podium. You probably ought to find out who who they really are, you know, before you do that. <coughs> Hi,
2: thank you. Um, I noticed uh, a few of these aesthetic elements that you were talking about with the Black Panther Party in terms of the the leather jacket and the beret, um, the narrative poems, the music, um, even the kind of spectacle, the political theater of wanting to stage the kind of spectacle for the cameras. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk. Uh, those elements were, how significant those elements were, and if you see any parallels today with the Black Lives Matter movement and the endpoints of aesthetics or, or a kind of spectacle or political theater that's happening today. How All right.
1: Do you compare those I mean, I think it's really different today because you have uh, social media. You know, um, I think a lot of the demonstrations uh, recently have been organized through social media. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I think the, you know, the Black Lives Matter appears they're decentralized setup. They say they don't have any one leader. Um, I, I'm not sure how that's gonna work, you know. I think they clearly have a, a, um, a mission that's important but I think that um, they should probably, um, that's why I said I'm curious as to what they're reading to guide them in their their struggle, and the other group, Color of Change, they're also—I mean, these are all very highly sophisticated, you know, media operatives. You know, um, you know, I think we—you know—we were doing what we were doing um, at that time. Um, I mean, I think it had a lot to do with with with, with our culture. I think we. Connected with the, uh, the flashy dressing drill team singing groups like the Temptations and other spectacles like that. James Brown, you know, used to put on this fabulous show, and you'd lose, you know, you, you know people would lose their minds, you know, watching him. And, and Isaac Hayes, you know, I remember Huey Newton talked about Isaac Hayes coming out on a stage in Las Vegas where he was chained, and he was holding a piano. He was obviously holding it, but he had a piano over his head, you know. I mean, that's the kind of theater that, you know, that kind of just, you know what I mean? Uh, It's a, um, you know, it's a spectacle. And I think that, um, you know, I I read the, the California Magazine like in 1980, when I was, it was right around the time when I was getting ready to turn myself in after being a fugitive. And I read the mag, and there were, these reporters were talking about that type of political theater, you know? I mean, I never thought about it in that way. You know, we just, we, you know, we, you know, a lot of what we were trying to do, we kept, we tried to keep it secret, you know? And there was the outward presentation that we wanted to have but we realized because we knew what kind of country we were in, everything wasn't going to be able to be just out in the open, you know. So a lot of times I guess you can think of something as kind of being a diversion. You know, the breakfast program was not a diversion. It became something uh, different. You know, I I don't even think we expected it to be what it became. But it was something as the, um, you know, Michael mentioned the whole thing of hearts and minds, you know, um, I, I, I think, and, and it's a program that still goes on today, you know, and that was something, it was, the, the intentions were great, but it did create an image, you know, that someone could see, like, wow, you know, looks like these guys are doing great work, but, um you know, our command of that whole issue of the spectacle—you know—it was—it was—it was limited. You know, we could only do it in certain instances. You know, because we didn't—we we definitely didn't control the media. Okay.
0: Right
2: here, um, so um, Cleaver, after um, he, f- he fled to Algeria, if I'm not mistaken, right, and he fled. He also, what I also like began to learn is that he also was um, meeting with certain leaders and other other presidents and you know yeah. other groups internationally and you know attaching him as a part of the Black Panthers, right? And thinking about how um, when Malcolm X went to um, Africa, he went to Egypt, he met with. Um, all the presidents, he went to Ethiopia, et cetera, right? And looking at how his demise sort of like followed after that. So how do you think like being able to reach across and being like internationally recognized and like being able to sit down with leaders and make this more of an international thing, a black international thing, how do you think that sort of sped up the process for the FBI to say we're going to get them? You know what I'm saying?
1: Well we we had relationships with all the frontline states yeah. during the seventies. Uh, um uh, the yeah. ANC, yeah. UNITA, um yeah. Palestine, the PLO, yeah. um, you know, um the um most of the um, Fr-Limo, the Frelimo you know. And um I mean I I guess, you know, I mean at the time, you know, um Everybody saw this as a a uh, it was like a world struggle, you know, because you had had you know you had hundreds of years of colonialism, you know, and uh, now the United States participated, but they participated in a different way, you know, they had a little more military might than most of these other countries, and wound up coming in, for example, they wound up going into Vietnam after the French were driven out. They didn't you know they didn't go into other places and in Africa, but that was probably one of the biggest ones. They, you know, go into the Middle East, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, but I think that, you know, I, I think it, it's, it's problematic when you start to communicate internationally mm-hmm. because you are, you're a citizen of this country still. Yeah. And if you're conducting business with another country uh, and you're not a registered agent, I think that's a, you know, i mean i i I understand, I understand that aspect of it yeah sure you could definitely create problems we didn't know that then yeah you know we didn't know we was, weren't supposed to be talking to the you know the uh ho chi men's people or anything like that <laughs> <laughs> take one or two more anyone russia i'd just like to and first of all thank you very
0: much
2: and i just like to ask you about your thoughts on Mumia Abu Jamal and why he's sort of just gone off the news.
1: And do um, you think the chances are that yeah. President Obama might pardon him? You mean, uh, um, well, I don't think the president can pardon him because he was convicted in the Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know him, and I, um, I mean, I, all I can do is, for somebody who's been to prison, I, I clearly empathize with him, you know, and I know that's very, very difficult for him. I mean, I, you know, I, I um, you know, a lot of people, they do go to prison, and they're unjustly convicted. Um, I, I, you know, I, I would never say I was unjustly convicted. <laughs> You know, probably the only reason why I didn't do as much time is I had a good lawyer. You know, I, I, I think that he's um, you know, probably, I think he's sick right now. He's very ill. And I think that may have a lot to do, he was supposed to um, call in. We had a Beyond the Bars, um, our, like sixth annual Beyond the Bars conference at Columbia University and Angela Davis was the keynote speaker. And he was supposed to call in, and you know, and, and he wasn't able to. So you know, I think that is—I think his health probably has a lot more to do with, um, you know, why he's kind of you know off the radar. Unfortunately, you
0: um, something.
1: Yeah. Um, what What are your thoughts on? Uh, well, it, it is relatively like a false dichotomy that's set up, but uh, your your thoughts on. Violence versus non-violence, and well, how do you understand the Black Panther Party in respect to being violent or non-violent? Uh, okay. Uh, you mean today? Oh, I mean. Or, looking back. Both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you know, like I said, I, you know, I mentioned this before. Okay. Um, to the state, you know, violence is a policy instrument. You know, I remember on the Oprah Winfrey show when George Bush the first asked Nelson Mandela to renounce violence, and Nelson Mandela said, "Are you ridiculous? <laughs> you know, there's no no statesman would ever renounce violence. You know, um, I, I mean, I, and I mean, self defense is when when does self defense become violence? I think when you don't control the media. You know." It's an entirely different issue. Today, you know, the biggest issue for me today in terms of nonviolence and violence is how, in the criminal justice system, how people are viewed as if you, if you went to prison for a nonviolent offense, you should get out before someone who went to prison for a violent offense, and most of the people who are in prison for violent offenses are, they're very old now, and they can't get out. Because you know, they're doing life or something like that. But they're not gonna come out here and do anything. You know, they just wanna live their lives. You know, so I, I, I think the whole issue of, you know, like I said, violence and nonviolence depends on you know who controls the media. You know, um, when you know, when the United States drops bombs on somebody else who's defenseless really they did that be in retaliation for somebody doing something isn't that violence? i mean it's state violence as opposed to someone who's saying i want you to leave me alone i want to live my life i want to uh, practice self-determination but you're in my country i mean it you know it gets it gets pretty complex you know when you when you think about it Does that answer your question? Okay. Thank you.
0: (laughs) All right. All right. We'll wrap it up there. Thanks. Thanks. Thank (laughs) you.